Thanks for listening to this catch-up content from Project Echo Westwick PHN Hub COVID-19 Pandemic Response Series. I'm going to bring you snippets of the didactic content. We'll edit out the discussion, but you can join us by registering with Westwick PHN. All right. Well, welcome to Project Echo. This is the Westwick PHN Hub COVID-19 Echo Network Series 5, Session 3. It's Thursday, the 3rd of June, 2021. And welcome back to our Echo Network. This session is titled Lockdown 4.0, Reviewing Our Outbreak Preparedness Agenda. Here we are back in lockdown and this time COVID active in our practices. New term, new traffic light system. Um, this state of lockdown is becoming a familiar place for our network to meet, and yet there's a few different factors and variables at play this time. While we await news about the easing of restrictions in regional Victoria, which will certainly make the lives of our families better, we know that this will not come without challenges to each of us as healthcare providers, leaders and managers in rural and regional Victoria. This lockdown shouldn't have caught us off guard, but it seemed to have had. Were we COVID ready? And what does outbreak preparedness mean now in primary care? We thought we understood this virus fairly well, but now it seems to be transmitting in a slightly different way. What's going on locally? What role can we play in primary care to support our local public health units and enable our community to be COVID safe? While we've been working to shoehorn the Commonwealth vaccine rollout into routine practice and roll with the hesitancy, the demands, and now the demanding hesitancy by consumers, well, what other urgent priorities in vaccination must be considered at this time and now in the context of an outbreak? What role will we play in primary care to address these priorities around access and equity? And no doubt you've got many other questions to add to this list. And we've got a trusted and intelligent lineup of panellists to help us puzzle these opportunities and these challenges this morning. But before we move into these uh, conversations and introductions, I'd like to start by making an acknowledgement to country. Let's see what's on the agenda this morning. We're going to introduce uh, a new speaker this morning, Prof Eugene Athan. He's the Clinical Director of the Public Health Unit, Bowen Southwest. And thanks to Eugene for coming in this morning in your busy schedule and uh, giving us an update on the situation uh, in Anglesey. And, and a little bit more broadly about what's happening with the public health activities at this time. You know Kate Graham. Kate's going to, uh, so he's been very busy updating um, pathways uh, in the last couple of days and weeks. Um, really delighted to welcome back Associate Professor Deb Friedman, coming from her role now as Infection Prevention and Control Advice Medical Director uh, of Victorian Government, or VicDH, who's um, back with us to, I think, help us with that refreshing of our aims now, um, setting a pandemic preparedness agenda for primary care. So Rowena, CEO, Westwick Primary Health Network, needs no introductions, and again, joined by Callum Maggs, so uh, Infectious Diseases Physician and Clinical Lead of the Vic Sick Clinic. So um, with that, I'd like to um, welcome you, Eugene, and hand over to you. To everybody. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to give um, the general practice community an update today. Um, I'm sure there's been a lot of consternation regarding the uh, recent uh, lockdown. I think the positive news is that if regional Victoria looks fine this morning, there is a good chance there'll be easing of restrictions at midnight tonight. People are probably aware of that. I haven't prepared slides for this session, but I'll give you an epidemiological update um, in regard to the recent uh, Anglesey uh, exposure sites. So we're up to uh, 60 confirmed cases uh, currently in Victoria. Many of them are in hotel quarantine as return travellers, but the vast majority relate to a cluster from a gentleman who had returned um, to Victoria from South Australia having left hotel quarantine and then getting exposed in the last couple of days of his stay there. 
that commenced in the northern uh, suburbs of Melbourne and has resulted in multiple exposures and uh, secondary cases related to close contacts, as well as those exposure sites. So the um, epi teams in Victoria related to the public health units have been busy tracking down uh, cases, close contacts in relation to exposure sites, and that's uh, resulted in a, approximately 300 potential exposure sites now, mainly around metropolitan Melbourne and certainly significantly around uh, Bendigo and also in more recently in Anglesey. Uh, this is a particular gentleman who just before the lockdown um, had spent some time at the Bistro at the Golf Club in Anglesey on the 25th of May uh, and also at the IGA. So presumably he was spending a few days at um, Anglesey specifically. We've listed those exposure sites. We can discuss that if people would like, but the tier one, the most significant exposure in our region is in regard to the bistro early evening, a dinner session at the um, Anglesey Golf Club. The other uh, exposure sites at the IGA and the bakery were uh, much shorter visits and therefore we've classified them as tier two, uh, which means that there's a different approach for people who've been in those places at those times whereby they're given advice around uh, isolating, getting tested. The isolation will vary from until they get a negative result if it's a tier two, but if it's a tier one exposure, then they're asked to isolate for 14 days from the day of that exposure, as well as getting tested. Um, our contact tracing team has been stepped up significantly from the core group, which was about uh, 15 that we had established recently as a new recruited long-term team. We're now up to about 60 staff. So we've had to surge very quickly Quite a few of the crew are those who've been involved in the um, outbreak of investigation management of Wave 2 at the end of and beginning of uh, this year. So many experienced crew working very closely with Department of Health and the other public health units. We've also assisted with the um, outbreak investigation in regard to exposure sites in metropolitan Melbourne, uh, which has taken up quite significant time. For those who are significant contacts, once they're asked to isolate at home, we have to then look after them. We call in each day, check that they're in, in good health, good welfare, and also uh, review them for symptom development and organise subsequent testing during their isolation. So it's quite a big undertaking. What might start as, let's say, uh, 30 individuals could turn into something in excess of 2,000 phone calls by the time you've talked to their extended network, household, work environment, colleagues, particularly if it's a sensitive setting like a school or a healthcare worker. So I think we've got a good handle um, today and at the end of yesterday, things are looking pretty positive. We'll certainly be looking at the data this morning to see if um, the uh, lockdown will still uh, go ahead or will be eased for regional Victoria based on those um, investigations that are in hand. In addition, we stepped up uh, testing right across the region. We've set up pop-up testing sites at Anglesey, Lawn. The Torquay setup was just increased further, more capacity, and also at Colac uh, for those who would like to know more about the testing capabilities. And we've asked the respiratory clinics to uh, increase their testing capability, if at all possible, as well as um, the private pathology providers. And the only other thing to add is that there's obviously been a big surge in demand for vaccination, which is a good thing. It's a shame that it's taken an outbreak for uh, the community to mobilise, but we're certainly um, vaccinating in excess of 2,000 people a day um, now at the Ford mass vaccination site. And we did develop priority lanes for aged care workers um, in the last sort of 48 hours, which has been quite successful. 
We're also doing some mop-up um, in-reach vaccination for aged care, where there are new residents um, who've uh, gone into care recently. So that, that's probably just a short summary. I'm sure there'll be lots of comments and questions. So I'll just pause there. At this point, I'll edit out our Q&A and discussion, but I'm going to hand over now to Kate Graham for a Health Pathways update. Yeah, it has been a really busy time in the Health Pathways um, world, just for all the reasons um, that you identified. So in our vaccination pages, we've obviously been looking at um, some of the hesitancy that exists um, and that brand decision um, sort of conversation, which is one that sort of just seems to come around and around with patients. And that is something that is still causing a lot of angst for practices. It's causing a lot of angst for um, Callum's clinic um, and referrals to theirs. So um, one of the things that we really want to reinforce through the pathways and through any mechanism possible is just really following the um, brand decision guidelines, uh, following the um, sick clinic referral um, for the specialist immunisation clinics, following the guidance because um, GPs are still sending people off to vaccination clinics with a letter from the GP and that's not something that is going to be accepted there. Um, any referrals for individuals under 50, I mean over 50, um, for Pfizer must have one of the contraindications to being vaccinated with AstraZeneca. Um, and I think that it's really helpful for practices to sort of have a look at some of the hesitancy guidance um, and the brand decisions that we've included in the vaccination procedure page, um, just in terms of having a script for patients who call up and say, hey, can I get Pfizer here? Because um, practices also need to be able to um, direct people to where they may be able to get the Pfizer vaccination if they're under 50. And that information, we're trying to keep as up-to-date as possible in the vaccination information page. Um, down the bottom, we've got individual clinic listings. Um, so, and we really wanted to sort of flag the access for vulnerable. So we've got the public health unit contact details there as well. In terms of COVID um, infections itself, um, we've been revisiting things like the practice setup um, or practice management page. Um, new sort of things that are in place for practices um, are the sort of recommendations from sort of state public health um, that QR codes are necessary for healthcare environments. Um, the PPE changes um, are reflected in the traffic light system guidance as well, so we should all be back to face coverings. Um, there has also been an advice out that for vaccination clinics, if you're in a high-risk area in terms of community transmission, that N95 masks may be worn. Um, however, sort of our regions may not be at that level at present. Um, so really it's been sort of changing how we think about our close contacts as well. Um, so with the sort of transmission, I think a lot of people last year were used to the primary close contact, secondary close contact language, and then bringing in the tier exposure site um, language is something that's been a bit different for people. Um, and particularly because some of the wording on um, some of the initial pages um, put out by public health units doesn't quite match up. So I think I really want people to be familiar with getting patients educated if they do come in and say, hey, I'm a tier two exposure and in testing, getting them to sort of reflect on the um, information that's available on the state public health um, websites about what their information is, getting them to check back because things change 
And most importantly, if somebody's been to one of the exposure sites, um, they need to actually contact the public health unit as well so that they've got a record of those contacts. Um, so all of that information has been updated. Um, just remembering mental health, a lot of people this week have been struggling a lot, testing everyone who has symptoms, encouraging people to test who have symptoms, particularly um, in our regions, we're seeing a lot of tier two exposures um, particularly the football um, exposures seem to have most of the of Western Victoria. Um, and so there was a misunderstanding from a lot of people that once they were tested, they were okay. So just reinforcing that monitoring for symptoms is really clear. So that's probably all from me, but I will stay on um, throughout if there's any questions. Wonderful. Thank you, Kate. Um, we're going to hand over to you now. Welcome back, Deb Friedman. Hi, everyone. So where are we now? Um, I won't use weeks as I did in 2020 um, when we said we're week 10, we're week 16, because just with young children after they get a few years old, referring to them in weeks or months loses relevance. So we've all aged about 15 months since COVID became a reality um, in Australia. And I think we're going to age a little bit more before it's behind us. Um, we've got We've had two bona fide waves in Australia and, of course, two additional lockdowns. Um, I wanted to go through what we've learned over these 15 months and where it brings us to now. I think one of the things that we've learned is that COVID-19 is actually a political issue and a partisan issue. Um, surprisingly, we would think it should be a health issue. Um, there was a time where Liberals were saying, get out from under the doona, open up, accept the fact that we're going to have cases and they attracted a following of people who didn't approve of masks and lockdown. And then look at the US um, as an example of how COVID has been so politically divisive, um, where the right-wing approach is to say it's not a big deal, masks are for the weak and it's all a hoax. Um, and I think that vaccine hesitancy has really followed some of those political um, arguments that started. Um, I think the second thing that we've learned is that suppression or containment is actually a really, really difficult balance. There have been very few countries that have been able to do it successfully, but they've still had to have several countrywide lockdowns um, when the numbers accelerate. In most cases in different countries, it's manifested by accelerating case numbers once the country opens up, hospitals becoming overrun, death spiralling out of control and then leading to more lockdowns. And that's actually what's happened in most countries who've adopted this, you know, containment suppression approach. I think the third thing that we've learned is that if you willfully ignore COVID and say, let's, you know, let it go, um, then that's very dangerous for the country. And if you look at the US, if you look at France, Sweden, Brazil, India, they're all really good examples of where this has happened. Um, I wanted to touch on the um, elimination strategy, um, which is obviously what we've been doing in Australia. And it does have many pluses, but it also has some difficulties. So we've been able to live relatively freely aside from our lockdowns and specifically the second lockdown, which was pretty prolonged. We've been able to go to restaurants, go to the footy, get your hair done, but what are the downsides? And the downsides are that one case means that we're all locked out of Western Australia, a few cases and we're all locked out of everywhere. Um, and if you book a trip interstate, you actually don't know if you'll be able to go. Um, 
there are many minor points um, and one of them is where do you go from a zero tolerance policy? Um, how many cases will be acceptable and will Australia be able to either accept international arrivals or allow Australians to travel? And these are some of the really important points that we're going to need to get answers to. And I think this segues into vaccination. The development of so many vaccines is, I think, nothing short of incredible, um, but it comes with great hopes of this is our way to get out of this predicament. Um, the way out of where Australia is is clearly going to be with vaccination and it's also going to be the way out for countries that are really ravaged by COVID currently. But then this brings us to which vaccine to use and which vaccine to use based on efficacy and side effect profile. And there were obviously decisions made many months before vaccines were ready to be rolled out and before some of the side effect profiles were known. And there's been some hesitancy and concern about AstraZeneca, which I'm not going to debate or elaborate because I think that's well known in the public domain. But regardless, there was one thing that put a big dent into vaccine hesitancy, and that was an outbreak. And Eugene alluded to this before. All of a sudden, the question of why do I need to get vaccinated because we don't have any COVID here became abundantly clear because all of a sudden we did have COVID here. Um, and so a new outbreak was the thing that answered that question. Um, and so I've sort of used the analogy of when you pack up your baby's cot and you give away all of the baby things, including the change table, and then you find out you're pregnant again. Or you go to a restaurant and they've put all the chairs up on the tables and said we're finished and then new diners come in. And so that's exactly like what's happened here where Bianca said we're really finishing up with Project Echo, you know, we're done with this COVID thing. So I think that and, and at the same time you discontinue your surge staffing for COVID and your temperature scanning and then all of a sudden there's, you know, an outbreak and you have to say, well, what do we do now? So, so for me, the eighth lesson, I am up to number eight, by the way, is that we will continue to be at risk. There are going to be rare occurrences of viral escape from quarantine facilities, which have huge consequences in Australia. Um, and so that brings me to number nine is about our knowledge about transmission and how it's expanded significantly. If we look at flu, we always said that flu was spread by droplet. And we, we believe that it is, it's those respiratory droplets that are expelled during coughing and speaking as well. And we typically said one metre, that's the distance um, that these respiratory droplets travel. There was always some evidence that flu could occasionally be spread by the airborne route, but it wasn't very common. We knew during the initial SARS outbreak, which was, you know, nearly um, 20 years ago now, we knew that airborne spread um, could occur then. Um, and now with SARS-CoV-2, we're finding out that can be reasonably, reasonably efficiently spread and it's not a high-frequency event, but it can occur especially in situations where you've got poor ventilation and crowding of people. We've learned a lot about the factors that promote um, promote this. And I think ventilation has become a really hot topic, especially in healthcare facilities and quarantine hotels. And it's really become central to our containment strategy anywhere. There's obviously initially whispers that quarantine hotels may not be the ideal place to put people with a contagious infection have now become, you know, a robust argument. 
And the risk in hotels cannot be completely mitigated, especially with these viral variants of concern. Um, and so the 10th lesson, and oh, sorry, the other thing I want to say about transmission, you've probably heard in the press recently, there were some cases where the belief is that they were acquired through very brief exposure, where we have CCTV footage of people like walking past each other in a shopping centre, and that's how brief that exposure was. They're not people who knew each other, who spoke to each other. You know, that's the best plausible argument we have now. But one of the things I will say is that in the second wave, there were some people that we could not identify the exact root of their infection. So there will be, as you get an increase in cases, there are the untraceable um, where you cannot link it back to anywhere. But what we know now is that there's definite hotspots. Epping is a hotspot. Craigieburn's a hotspot with numerous different shopping centres, et cetera, um, that have been linked to transmission. And so I think all of these different viral variants um, have really upped the ante so it's the same disease, but more easily transmissible. And what we're seeing is a much shorter incubation period. And in the case of this particular outbreak, by the time it was known that we had cases last week, there'd already been six generations of spread. So from me to Gemma, Gemma to Bianca, Bianca to Callum, Callum to um, to Kate, etc. There'd already been six of those that had taken place by the time we knew that we had, you know, one infection. And um, so the messages from these learnings, we come back to where are we now in primary care? And that comes back to anyone with symptoms still needs to continue to get tested in this current climate to exclude COVID, even when you think that there's no COVID in the community. And that to me is by far and away the most important message. And I think, and this is no critique of all of you good folk um, in Western Victoria. But this whole outbreak started because the first patient went to see a GP um, with symptoms and the GP didn't get him tested. Um, and that was on the first day of his illness. So it is really important. GPs are at the front line of people saying it might be nothing and I know there's no COVID, but so I think that's where you say, well, we, we actually do need to get you tested because you only don't have COVID until you have COVID. So there's only no COVID in the community until we have that first case. Um, GPs will be under pressure to get back to business as usual. And this might be a reasonable proposition if you've excluded COVID in patients with um, compatible symptoms. And ultimately, until we're all vaccinated, we're not protected and we can't really go anywhere or feel protected. And it's only with a majority vaccinated population that things will change from COVID being um, a pandemic as it is now to it being an endemic condition. Recently, the CDC has come out in the US recommending that people who've been vaccinated don't need to be investigated for Infection. So that means if people who've been fully vaccinated get symptoms, the CDC is saying don't bother investigating them. Now, Australia may not land on that exact same position, but it shows you how the thinking is changing because people might say, well, if we've got a majority vaccinated population, do we really care if you're positive because, you know, you're not going to get really sick and those vaccinated around you shouldn't get really sick either. So I think it's an interesting argument. Um, unfortunately, we just don't know how long it will take. We've obviously got a surge in vaccination right now. 
how long will that continue for and then will there still be hesitancy? So I think there's, you know, there's still questions there. A lot of what we've found challenging is that, you know, we're one person doing a clinical interaction and there's a lot that needs to happen in that organisational space, uh, but we've got a relationship with that organisational space. So I guess I want you to set us an agenda. You know, what are the things that you think we need to be thinking about, prioritising, both as individual healthcare workers, but as a collective? So, yeah, that's a that's a big question. It's a big yeah. question. I know. I know. Um so I guess the first thing is that there has to be a balance between this um, living in the pandemic mentality, you know, how do GPs practice in the pandemic mentality, and then saying we still need to have business as usual going ahead. And so somehow you need to be able to strut in both of those spaces simultaneously. But I think the really important thing for GPs, I think, you know, good triaging systems, which I'm sure most practices have well in hand. I think triaging probably still ends up being one of the most important things in order for you to work in either space, whether it's working in the pandemic space and saying, I'm going to send you to get a test and then I'm going to be able to, you know, evaluate you more completely. Or, but it's, you know, still, we all get a lot of flack, not just GPs, but hospital practitioners as well we all get a lot of flack for potentially ignoring all of the other chronic diseases and so somehow you need to have one of your you know screens in front of you open has to be thinking about what are the chronic diseases that are being neglected currently and that will continue to be neglected if we're only living in that sort of pandemic headspace so I think and and so that comes back to GPs need to be well protected um, it means using appropriate PPE for your interactions and making sure that your practice has an appropriate COVID safe plan. And I think those th- things still need to be in place and that that will be for a while longer. And I think PPE requirements for GPs can be very challenging. Um, there's, you know, perhaps differing information. There might be a lot of fear Um, But I think it does come back to excellent triaging. And if you have somebody who doesn't have symptoms compatible or any illness, then a surgical mask is is what we would recommend. And if you're getting up close and personal, the addition of eye protection is what they're using in the hospitals for interactions. I don't think it's inappropriate as to whether or not you absolutely need it. That's another question that we could debate. But... um, yeah, so, but I understand that PPE is challenging and the pipeline is not the same as what we have in the hospitals. Okay, thank you, Deb. All right, fantastic. Thanks for keep putting questions in the chat. We will come to them, if not in this session, but into the next. Because of time, I'm going to actually hand over to Rowena and, um, and Rowena, um, I'll enable you to ask questions of Deb. Sure. Um, Deb, I was just going to say, how are the health services? So I know there was one patient in, in ICU at one point. So are we seeing actually a a relationship to any presentations to our health system? Is our health system okay? Health system is completely okay and they've already created a surge capacity of 100 beds ready to go for patients and there's only one being used. So I think we're, we're pretty good 
Yeah. Thanks, Deb. Um, I'm going to be really brief and I'm going to say to you, what we're here to do is actually get our communities vaccinated. So everyone's talking about the bipartisan. I need to assure you that we're trying to work with the Commonwealth and kind of shift them to the side so that we can have local solutions. So we're working really closely with both public health units. Um, I meet with the Commonwealth every week and every week we try and have a conversation about what it actually looks like on the ground. So some of the policy shifts I just want to quickly share with you. There was an additional EOI out. We are looking at the maps of where we've got coverage and where we don't. And we're trying to make sure that we have got more GP sites that can assist us to cover our region completely. Um, Importantly, um, our first GPRC is receiving Pfizer and delivering Pfizer. So there is a Commonwealth shift to more um, GP type clinics providing Pfizer. And I'm sure Danny will be putting up her hand very shortly to say that they want to do it too. We know that disability is an issue. We're trying to work with our disability sector with residents over 50. That's our window to try and make sure that they um, are vaccinated. But again, working with the PHU to just say, can we get these people vaccinated? Uh, private residential aged care, most of our facilities now have moved into their second dose vaccination clinic. That doesn't equal everyone vaccinated. So I think the key for us is how we get that granular data to understand where we've got pockets who have not been vaccinated. Um, and I think I just want to say thank you to all of you for everything you're doing. We do have stocks of PPE. Please contact your PHN, your practice facilitator, and write to me if you want me to advocate for anything in particular. I am your voice back to the government. I can't change this ship necessarily, but I'll keep pushing. Thanks, everyone. And our final didactic presentation is by Dr. Callum Maggs from the VicSick Clinic at Barwon Health. So, hi, guys. Um, so... Just to give a bit of context again about uh, Vixis, um, so you know it's a, it's evolved a lot since it started a few months ago. And initially, we didn't know what the um, what the problems would be arising out of vaccines. So we were initially concerned about allergy. We were concerned about transverse myelitis, Guillain-Barre, special risk groups, pregnancy. We didn't know a lot of data around these things. There's a lot more data that's come out uh, with post marketing analyses. So uh, and and. Also, we've seen a, a huge uptick in the number of referrals, which uh, is great. Um, but I think now that uh, our criteria for referral have evolved, um, a lot of them are being declined because of the ATAGI uh, and uh, VIXIS uh, guidelines. Um, so just, just to um, give you an idea of where we're up to now, really what at the bread and butter of our service is turning into is um, and, and what we really want to be seeing is people that have had a significant adverse event following their first COVID vaccination. Um, that can include something that seems rather minor to us, but uh, is a cause for great hesitancy in the patient or consumer. Um, things that we don't really care about so much anymore, a, a lot of pre-vaccination things. So um, you know, hesitancy around having AstraZeneca because of the clotting. I, I think the, you know, the silver lining of this um, recent outbreak is that it's flipped that risk-benefit discussion on its head again um, because before people were keen just to sit around and wait and see if they could get Pfizer or a different vaccine because of their uh, minute risk of um, having a blood clot. Uh, but now, you know, the risk of exposure to, to COVID and, and serious complications from that is is 
higher again um, than the clotting. Uh, and just to give an idea of the, um, the, the risk of TTS at the moment uh, in Australia, uh, so we've seen you know, 30 plus cases, we've had one death, um, the, the risk is around one in 90,000 uh, of getting it and the risk of mortality in that is uh, you know, getting close to 2% now because we've only had one death and we're very good at picking it up and managing it. Um, so, yeah, really, um, where, if, you, if you're keen to discuss or you're having trouble with a patient who's sort of bullying you into referring to us to get a Pfizer or try to find ways to get Pfizer, um, don't hesitate to email us with a, with a query because our, you know, our email is a bit of a, um, a dialogue between other clinicians. Um, and we've got backing from the DHS with you know, DHS letterheads that uh, they, they might sound a bit patronising to you guys, but they're actually also designed as something that you can say to the patient, look, there's no way you're going to get um, a Pfizer vaccine at this point in time. And um, it helps to, as a launching pad to say, AstraZeneca is your option. These are the risks. And, and to be honest, um, the, the data around efficacy for AstraZeneca is getting better and better. It's looking like it's got better longevity than Pfizer in terms of um, immune responses, neutralizing antibodies, and, and effective real world effectiveness in terms of ending up in hospital with COVID, uh, although it is early data. Um, but yeah, like I said, the Vixis uh, email is there for uh, queries from you guys. It doesn't have to be a formal referral. Um, if you're not sure if it warrants a referral, just, just send an email there and say, hey, what do you think? What, what are our options? Um, and you, you might get a, oh, sorry, we, we can't help with that. Or you might get a, send them in, we'll, we're happy to have a chat. All right. Well, that concludes the catch-up content. I've edited out about half an hour of live discussion, but you can join us live by registering with West Vic, PHN, COVID-19, Project Echo.